as the Holy Spirit is interceding for you, is bringing that all possible. That should give us confidence when we, we look at our worship guys and we see a really long list of stuff. That's, that's small print. <laughs> that would fill up a large piece of paper. But it gives us confidence knowing that our prayers and the Spirit of Jesus Christ is going to accomplish His will. Even when we don't know what that is. Even when we're not sure how to word it in our prayers. Jesus Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit that rests inside of you as a believer, is making intercession, speaking for us when we don't know what to say. And Paul was confident that what he was enduring, that what was being proclaimed was all going to work together for God's glory. Paul believed that God had ordered even his deliverance from these circumstances. Because whether through life or death, Jesus will be honored. And that should be what everything's about. Whether you're working for American Airlines, or whether you're uh, searching for a job, or whether you're at home taking care of your children, whether you're teaching, whether you're a nurse, whatever you may be doing, that should be our ultimate goal, that Jesus Christ is honored. And Paul was sure of that. That even while in prison, being afflicted by other preachers, Paul found courage knowing that his life was not being wasted. In fact, Paul was eager to live. Again, if we look at the top part of that piece of paper, you might not be so eager to live if you read it too long. You get overwhelmed by what you see on the news. You get overwhelmed by what you see in your own personal life. But Paul was eager to live. We often hear people jokingly say that, yes, I'm ready to go to heaven, but I hope you're not getting a bus up to go right now. Well, why not? What is it that you're living for in this world that would keep you from, from jumping on the chariot of fire to collide you on to heaven? Because you see, we've we got to make up our minds. There, there's a little bit of double-mindedness, right? Yeah, I'm ready to go to heaven, but you know what? I've got to get married. Or I've got to finish school. Or I've got to see my grandkids grow up. Or I've got to retire and be able to, you know, do whatever you do in retirement. Or I've got to get a car. Or, you know, there's all types of things that we, we remember in life that makes us want to get up in the morning. The order we get, we have less of those things anyway. <laughs> but what is it? If you're not ready to jump on board and go to heaven today, Again, that's not my first point. Don't jump ahead. But if you're not ready to jump on board and go to heaven, then what is it that's anchoring you down? What is so important that you would not want to leave right now? Well, let me give you a few things that should not. Here's point number one, right? Let me get you to, to get rid of the bad motivations for, for living. First of all, a few things that should not anchor our hearts. The first one that I'd like to mention is freedom to live for the pleasures of the world. Freedom to live for the pleasures of the world. Paul says that we should not use the liberty that we have been given graciously by Christ to satisfy the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Peter agrees in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, 
For the time that is that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, and lawless idolatry. We've had sufficient time to participate in sin prior to salvation. And now is the time to suffer in holiness. So is it passion or the pleasures of this world that you're wanting to live for? Or the things you haven't experienced yet, things that you see on TV, things that you hear your friends doing, things that you, you've always, you know, you haven't really aspired to because you're really kind of embarrassed when people think you're aspiring to something. But you know what, there's things out there that you haven't had the ability to do yet. You haven't had enough freedom yet. You haven't had enough exposure to stuff yet. Is there something down deep in your soul that is longing? If I could just do this first. We should not allow the freedom to live for the pleasure of this world to anchor us down. A second thing that we shouldn't allow to anchor our hearts down is the pursuit of treasure in the world. See, that first point was sort of for the younger folks who haven't lived enough time to actually have, have, have had long enough to sin. Can I put it that way? I mean, there's some things you can't do until you get a certain age, or certain places you can't go to until you get a certain age. And that first part about doing things uh, and the pleasure of the world is for you. But as you get older, you start realizing a desire and a temptation to want to accumulate stuff. We have television programs that come on throughout the day that celebrate people accumulating stuff. What does that make me want to do when I watch it? Accumulate stuff. So you thought I was pious and I was all beyond all that stuff, right? And I start looking at somebody else's stuff. And I say, you know what? I don't want their stuff. I just want my stuff. I don't have it. I'm just free. <laughs> but Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. It echoes the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, in which he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Moss, rust destroyed. Thieves will break in and steal. So your pursuit of treasures of the world is something that should not be anchoring us down. If you're hoping that if I can just get one more of this, or if I can just obtain one more of that, then my life will be complete and I'm ready to go to that. These things won't last. They're subject to being lost. And the third thing, affection for the world. Paul uses a couple of illustrations when he writes to Timothy, chapter First Timothy chapter two or Second Timothy chapter two. And one of those illustrations is of a soldier, and he warned Timothy about the entanglement in the affairs of this world. The old authorized version says, "No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted." So, getting entangled, and that's really tricky. I'm sure that there are a lot of churches that, are, that have people listening to someone preach that are going to define what entangled in the affairs of this world means. 
We have to be really careful about making lists of things about how we get entangled. But what we should be sure of is that our heart does not get so overwhelmed with what's going on in this world, regardless of how well-intentioned we are, that we forget who we're serving. It reminds us of what John tells us in his first letter to the church in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And this world is passing away. So we should not love this world. It's not going to be here forever. The way things are going is not going to be here very long. We have to remember that for 6,000 years there's been nothing but turmoil and strife, sin. It's nothing new. And one day, this world that's been corrupt and cursed by sin will no longer be. So to have affection for this world, to have affection for the world system, the cosmos, if you will, that should be anchoring us down. There's nothing in this world, regardless of how beautiful it is, regardless of how resourceful it is, regardless of how enjoyable it is, it is not going to last. We should not love it. So just reminding ourselves that we should not anchor our hearts in this world. The things that should keep us from going to heaven should not be the pleasure of the world, the treasure of the world, or the affection for the world. Sadly, in this world which is crumbling around us, our sorrows often manifest in our loss. A loss of our misplaced freedom or security. Or affections. We're sad when this world doesn't reach the potential that we think it has. We're saddened when we are aware that things will never be like they used to be. Those sentiments are attached and anchored down to temporal things. We should be grieved when things take a downturn. We should be upset when we see the curse of this sinful world showing itself. But we should be anchored down. Over the past couple of weeks, two major political parties have appealed to our hearts and our minds seeking to persuade you with what you think is important and how they are the means to get it. You may have heard about financial prosperity or social justice and equity, domestic and international security, universal education, technological advances, health coverage, housing assistance, and other promises. As if this is what it takes for a man to have purpose for living. You may even have heard an invocation for God to bless all. One thing you didn't hear was a promotion of self-denying, cross-bearing, Christ-exalting pursuits to immeasurable gain. 
That's good news. And you're going to hear that here. This church and other churches around the world that are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is that our sin-wrecked lives can be salvaged because Jesus Christ, fully human, that is that he was subject to death and fully God, that is in holiness and righteousness, took our sin upon himself on the cross to satisfy the wrath of a holy, righteous God. Not just for eternity's sake, as enormous and incredible as this is, but to repurpose our lives to fulfill the original intention by the Creator. So that when we deny ourselves, that is turning from our sin, taking up our cross, placing all confidence or faith in His atoning work on the cross as a payment for our sins, and in His resurrection, and following Him, that is, bearing our cross and going after Him and obeying His word, we are made new creatures in which the old has passed away, and behold, all things are becoming new. And our lives can be lived with the same joy as Paul because we have the same intention of knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's something a political party cannot give you. That's something that some social health agency cannot provide for you. That's not something a university or a school cannot give you. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have been given it as an opportunity to share it with the world. Paul understood that it was necessary for him to live, not for sports, not for travel, finances, comfort, home improvement, collections, education, politics, or any of that other stuff, but for fruitful labor. He was free to suffer with Christ and, and dedicate himself to the will of God, as 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 tells us. This would involve using his liberty in Christ to serve others, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5. It would demonstrate an investment in heaven, being a slave to God and looking for eternity reward, as Jesus Christ spoke about in Matthew chapter 6. And it would result in pleasing the one who calls us to be a soldier because we love him, doing his will. So what do you consider to be necessary? What is it in this world that you cannot do without? In our text, Paul says in verse 22 that his life in the flesh will result in a fruitful harvest. Not a whole lot of channels on TV about that. Sadly enough, you won't find a lot of bookstores, even Christian ones, that will speak a lot about it. <clears throat> this harvest would be their progress and joy in the faith. This harvest would glorify Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at those three aspects. First of all, the harvest. The sovereign work of God will be completed over time with expected success. Earlier this year, I went out in my backyard where there was some dark dirt gathered from my father's cow pasture. Not that that's where my father lived. His pasture. <laughs> uh, but the dirt uh, mixed it up a little bit, put some fertilizer in it, and I put some seed in it. It's always easier when you take like a 
getting my word of it, just a plant that's already been started. And you set that up because at least that gives in your mind that, well, at least it's already growing. I may kill it here in just a few weeks, but <laughs> there's something there growing now. It's green, it's got leaves on it, and hopefully it'll keep getting bigger. But when you put something in ground and it's, it's a seed, it's hidden from it. But I look at the back of the package and I have every expectation based on the manufacturer, or the, or the packager, I should say, manufacturer's got. Uh, but the packager of these seeds gives me an expectation of what to expect and to some degree when I should expect it. And this year, as normal, I will put out some tomato plants. I like tomatoes enough that I'm going to start them out as you know plants. I'm not going to put tomato seeds in the ground. That would take way, way too long. <laughs> but cucumbers, and particularly, I've done that before, but I've never planted eggplant seeds. Amy was wanting eggplant. For what reason? I can only imagine cheese wanting to eat it. Regardless of how much cheese or meat that you put on it, I could just eat that on something else. But eggplant, I wasn't sure what to expect because I'd never grown them before. So I had to, by faith, do like I did every other seed that I planted and put them in the ground and fertilize it and water it. And even though I had no anticipating or anticipation of eating the eggplant, you can't imagine how much satisfaction it was in my, in my heart and in my soul when I saw that it started sticking by the ground. It's getting close. And then it started to grow bigger. And then finally one day, the, the, the ugliest thing in the world can grow up a vine. Wasting space for a tomato. Uh, an eggplant. I had an expectation, even though I wasn't real sure what it was going to look like. I didn't know how long it was going to take. But when I planted it, I had expectation. And when we think about the harvest that Paul was living for in the flesh... He had to understand that this was part of the sovereign work of God, that he wasn't responsible for it. All he was, he was just here to tend it. But he was here to tend it. He didn't say, you know what, you know, it's really great that living during this time of Roman history because they've got the games going on over there in the Colosseum and they've got stuff going on over there and they've got all different types of cultures there that I can you know, you know, learn about and be able to enjoy all the foods and everything. Paul wasn't about that. Now, do I know that Paul never went and saw a game in Rome? I, I don't know. He never talked about it. He said for him to live was Christ, and in this life that he was to have a fruitful harvest. Life is an investment in production, one of eternal spiritual distinctive significance. If you just look back in verses 9 through 11 there, in chapter 1. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all the servants so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul looked on the back of the package. He said, you know what, based on this package and based on this seed I'm doing here, uh, I'm expecting to see some, some love and discernment and some understanding. As your faith continues to grow. That's what it was about. 
He was praying for that end. And what did we say about prayer earlier? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that's helping us pray according to do what? The will of God. So Paul had this idea of harvest. He also had what the harvest was, their faith, true faith. Faith that will progress and grow, resulting in what? Joy. So you can have faith in what they tell you on the news. It's probably not going, even if it's that two books to those things, it's kind of giving you the secrets about all this, you know, I want to know before I buy it sort of thing. They're not going to give you much joy if you listen to that long enough. They're going to create some depression. They're going to create some dependency. It's not going to create any joy. But you know what? When you have true faith in what God's doing, when you have faith in this harvest that God is planting, what God is watering, what God is going to bring to fruition, that's going to produce joy because it's going to honor Jesus Christ. Faith that is dead, or faith is dead if it's not increasing. Joy is the result of understanding God's ways, God's wisdom, and God's work. But the joy is not the end result. When I looked at the eggplant growing there, the joy that I experienced wasn't enough. The joy would only be fulfilled when it produces what? Glory. Glory, and again, this is really hard for me to say, but actually grilling it and eating it and saying, man, that was worth it. All that weight. Now, see, I can really do that for the tomato, but I didn't start with the seed, so I couldn't use that as an illustration. But the eggplant, when you partake, when you enjoy what God has been working on all of this, that joy isn't an end to itself. The joy causes you to what? God, you're good. Jesus Christ is honored because of what he is doing in this harvest. And when Jesus comes back, he will be glorified in what he's done. And this is not a new thought. Thing. Again, we're, we haven't even finished chapter 1 here yet, but look in verse 6. For I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work and you will perfect it into the day of Jesus Christ. He's already six verse pointing them to look at the end. Don't get all encumbered by what's going on here in the middle. Look at the end. Because I am confident of this one thing, that what Jesus Christ started back here, he is going to be faithful to bring it to completion when he comes back. Verse 10, we've already read this, but so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless, when? Until the day of Christ. So this harvest is going to keep on being cultivated. It's going to keep on growing until finally Jesus Christ is going to come back. And guess what? Then you can expect Mark Amen to be perfect. That's what he's working on. He's trying to, to weed. He's trying to get rid of all the, the imbalances. He's trying to get rid of all the self-serving nature that I have. And he's working on that. So when Jesus Christ comes back, I'm going to be like Christ. That produces joy in my heart. Not because I've experienced it yet, but because I'm faithful to he who started. He's going to be faithful to complete. 
This is what it means to say to live is Christ. To glorify Jesus Christ with faithfulness that produces fruit. That we should live to know about Christ. We should seek to imitate Christ. We should seek to proclaim Christ. We should seek to enjoy Christ. That's what it means for, for me to live is Christ. That requires me to get rid of all that junk. All that self-serving, self-pleasing junk that contaminates my life, that distracts me from the truth, that places my confidence in myself. That means that I have to understand what Christ is in my life. So that I can say for me to live is Christ. So if we've gotten to the point where you can say, you know what, I can, I can say, I need to get rid of that stuff. The Holy Spirit's convicting me, I need to get rid of that stuff. I need to repent. And, and I can see that there is actually some purpose for living in this world, that there, there is a mission that, whether it's in Jackson's Heights, New York, or whether it's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that you know what, there's something going on that I need to be a part of a harvest that God is raising up these people, calling them by faith, regenerating their heart, so that they might serve them in obedience. And that might motivate you to want to wake up every day of your life to see how you're going to be a part of that harvest, how I'm going to be a part of that ministry. But we have to recognize that Paul did not leave us at that point. Paul himself, he was ready to take up his tent. Paul was ready to leave the dock, so to speak. He was eager to depart. Why? Well, the English doesn't exactly express it completely because there's a there's a double description there. It's not that because it's far better, but Paul literally said because it is very far better. Now this is not some whimsical, oh Lord, I just can't take any of this misery any longer. Please just take me on the heaven. This wasn't Elijah's sort of prayer saying, Oh, I'm the only one left, God. Will you please just take me on? Now, this was a man who knew that to live is Christ, and that harvest is vital, and it's meaningful, and it's joyful. But he was ready to depart. It wasn't simply to escape an oppressive Roman government. It wasn't to escape his health problems. It wasn't to escape his housing situation. It wasn't to escape the hypocrites in the church. It wasn't to escape the fear of war or disgusting lifestyle of the sinful or the injustice of the world or any such thing. As a matter of fact, spoiler alert, chapter 4, he says that God has made me to the point where I can be content in any circumstance. So it wasn't that he was trying to escape the sin because he had learned 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that in his weakness, God's grace makes him strong. So before you misunderstand what I'm saying, I agree that the aforementioned list of undesirables will indeed go away forever one day. But Paul's desire was for something particular and specific. His desire was to depart with Christ. 
You see, absence from problems is not enough to be bad. We must ask ourselves, what are we a part of two? Are we getting rid of these problems just so that we can expose to other problems? Are we getting rid of this relationship so that we can find ourselves vulnerable in another relationship? Are we getting rid of this job because we're hoping to pursue a different job? Now don't misunderstand. There's reasons for doing these types of things in life. That's what life is all about. But if we're just simply trying to get rid of the problem and go to heaven, we're missing the point. Paul says for me to live is Christ, but to to die is gain because the parting is to be with Christ. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. The Gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. If we're wanting something more than God, in this world or in any other world, you have been converted. If you're being anchored down in this world by something other than being departed to be with God, Better search your heart and make sure of your salvation. Let me ask you to put it this way. Do you, do you find yourself spending time with your family around the dinner table looking at your device? What does your family think about that? Well, they don't care about they're looking at their <laughs> Your spouse. When you come home or when you meet together, find out how your day been, and one of you begins to talk and the other one is busy walking away. Something else is more important. Shouldn't be necessarily. Did you see the difference? It's one thing for me to come home from work, be with my wife at home. It's another thing for me to leave work, go to my home, and really be with my wife. Listening, talking, connecting. Same thing for him. There, there's a difference. I mean, I, I grew up, I think very well, I didn't do it enough. We playing golf. And to some degree, the reason why me and my buddies got together was to play golf. But that was just an opportunity most of the time for us to, in between swings, to talk, to have a conversation. And you can find your own realm of life in which you find yourself in relationships, and sometimes the golf game is more important than the relationship. And then sometimes the relationship is, you know, Regardless of what the golf game like, you're engaged. And if you think somehow you're going to be able to experience the glories of heaven apart from going to be with Christ, if you're too busy naming off the gold streets and pearly gates and all this other stuff, 
stuff and dimension and all this stuff, if that's what's on your mind, you may want to find out where your salvation is grounded. My relationship with my father over the years has progressed to different levels. At first, as a young child, I was just dependent on him for everything. I, I didn't realize what I needed in life, and my father was the one who provided me, by and large, among other people. And then, as I grew older, particularly as a teenager, I realized that my father was able to not just simply meet my needs, but he was also able to give me what I wanted. And to be quite honest with you, he became a means to an end. That I realized that if I satisfied my father, if I did what my father wanted me to do, that that would have some consequences, it might turn out to be in my favor. And so my relationship had changed. And as I grow older, I find out that it's not so much that I want to be around here so I can learn how to fix a a water spigot or to work on a car. But I find myself subconsciously, don't tell me this because they get me that. But I find myself finding things that I can do with my father, not because I necessarily want to work on a 1976 Toyota pickup truck, <laughs> but it gives me an opportunity to spend time with my father. And the older I get, the more I regret back in the past and say, well, why did I call on that a long time ago? I was distracted. Distracted by girls, I was distracted by career, I was distracted by ministry, I was distracted by a lot of different things. You know, I look back at my life and I, yeah, I realized that my father's life was coming to a short, shorter period of time. And there's a longing for me to want to spend time with my father. I, I hear the same thing in Pastor Charlie who talks about spending time with his father. And there are things and people in your life that you may be able to relate to that may be different than that. But you understand the difference about, well, it's good for me to depart because I'll be out of this world of problems. If I was to go over the next time I'm going to work on the truck with my dad and say, you know, I'm so glad you're here because I really want this truck. And you're helping me get my truck. And you're helping me do things that I can't do myself. So thank you, but you know what? It's all about my truck. It's my relationship with How's your relationship with God today? Let me close with something that Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan preacher, and what Pastor Tim really appreciates the fact that he, on this one passage of scripture, that I already had enough time to try to figure out how I want to present this, for him to give me a few books of some great preachers on their exposition of this passage of scripture. <laughs> Richard Baxter in his book, Dying Thoughts, says this, and perhaps you can relate to this, so listen carefully. God is the same God in heaven as on earth, but I shall not be the same man. Here, the windows of my soul are not open to his light. Sin has raised clouds, and consequently storms against my comforts. The entrances to my soul by the strengths of flesh and sense are narrow. 
And they're made narrower by sin than they were by nature. Alas, how often would love have spoken comfortably to me, and I was not at home to be spoken with, but abroad among a world of vanities. Or was not at leisure, or was asleep, and not willing to be awake. How often would love have come in and dwelt with me, and I have unkindly shut him out. How often would he have freely entertained me in secret, but I had some trifling company or business which I was loth to leave. When his table had been spread for me, and Christ, grace, and glory offered to me, how my appetite had been gone or dull. He would have been all to me if I, if I would have been all to him. But in heaven I shall have none of these obstructions. Do you get it? There's very little in this world we than before. Very, very little. We need to look back. The younger, the better. Earlier on, the better. But there is life to be had in this world, and to live is Christ, participating in a harvest that He has sovereignly been working since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. And He will accomplish it in our life if we submit to Him, if we obey Him, if we confess our sins, repent, and cling to Him, taking our cross and following after Him. And one day, Everything that's fighting you in that endeavor. Because the part to be with Christ is very far better.